0: good morning as he has made very clear and I will amen it is good to be back in the house of the Lord this morning. I uh, just found myself getting into my emotions as we're as we're singing these great truths and these these great verities that we sing here that, that honor God and remind us of where our hope lies. all right as as brother paul said we are we are in the sixth psalm today um, as we continue the summer in the psalms now we'll tell you i i'll be preaching this out of the new american standard bible that's the bible that i have Um, i looked at them both in making that decision that they're really close in fact one may actually help you interpret the interpret the other one a little bit better but I'm going to do the initial reading I'll read it from the New King James because that's what he'll have up on the board Um, but as we come into this sixth psalm it's such a blessing to be able to go through these psalms because the psalms reveal so much of the character of God to us there's so much good theology that is found in these psalms and um Psalms give us very good examples of prayer. I think Brother Jay mentioned last time he was up here that you can never go wrong praying through the Scripture. But we see these, these great illustrations in the Psalms of God's continual faithfulness to His covenant people in which we should find much comfort and much hope. They teach us of acceptable worship. And as in this Psalm today, they teach us of repentance and what it looks like to have sincere and godly sorrow and brokenness over our sin. Psalm 6 is a psalm of repentance. It is the first of the seven penitential psalms, the others being 32, 38, 51, which we are all familiar with. 102, 130, and 143. It is a psalm of David. And it is interesting about this one is a, a universal psalm of repentance. Meaning there's no specifics mentioned in reference to the nature or the cause of David's suffering here. Which makes it very applicable to us as we dig into it. The psalm definitely was written though for, in or for a time of great suffering. And if ever the throb of personal anguish found tears and a voice, it does so here in the sixth psalm. How providential that it falls when it has fallen. Is there any among us who are sick? Is there any of us that are afflicted? Any burdened and heavy laden under the the guilt of sin and the smarting rod of God? Then let us meditate upon this psalm. For it shows us the cause, the effect, and the cure. It is a transcript of perennial experience. A guide to a path that that all of our feet at some time will travel. Yes, trials and tribulations are not an elective class in the Christian life. But they are a required course. Let me say that again. In the Christian life, trials and tribulations are not an elective course. They are a required class. That's why Jesus tells us to count the cost to be a disciple. And no one knew this better than, than the King David with perhaps maybe the exception of Job. And as we go through this today, you will see how this sixth psalm almost is a condensed and concise form of the sufferings that Job went through. Let us now dig into this prayer and this plea and find instruction in righteousness, understanding for our sufferings, and comfort and application for our lives. I would invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open it to Psalm 6. And we will read. Hear now the words of the true and living God to the chief musician with stringed instruments on an eight-string harp. The Psalm of David. O Lord, do not rebuke me in Your anger, nor chasten me in Your hot displeasure. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am weak. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are troubled, and my soul is greatly troubled. But You, O Lord, how long? Return, O Lord, deliver me. Save me for Your mercy's sake. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In the grave who will give thanks? I am weary with my groaning. All the night I make my bed swim. I drench my couch with tears. And my eye waste away because of grief. It grows old because of my enemies. Depart from me all you workers of iniquity. For the Lord has heard my voice of my weeping. And the Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord will receive my prayer. Let all my enemies be ashamed and greatly troubled. Let them turn back and suddenly be ashamed. Let's pray to the Lord to bless this word this morning. Father and sovereign God, we, we come before you in the only acceptable way, Lord. In the name of your Son, Christ Jesus. Lord, I pray that You would bless the preaching of this Word this morning. Lord, that You would get me out of the way, that everyone here would forget me and remember Your Word and remember You. Lord, I pray that You would, you would strengthen and refresh Your people this day. That if there be any here among us, Lord, who do, do not know You, who have not been born again to a living hope, who are hopeless, alienated, and without hope in this world, Lord, would You you send Your Spirit if it be Your good pleasure and prick their consciences, Lord. Give them a new heart that they might feel and love the God that they at the present hate and that they may have a hatred, a deep indignation for the sin that they now love. Lord, Lord, I know I cannot do this apart from You, Lord, so I'm begging You, Lord, and pleading with You that You would send Your Spirit that you would bless this word and that Christ would be exalted and that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Alright, so Psalm 6. Verse 1, David says, O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger nor chasten me in your wrath. Yes, five times in these first four verses we see David going to the, the only place a child knows to go for refuge and for help he goes to his father and because of the guilty silence of the of the of the modern pulpit a whole generation of churchgoers have become deplorably ignorant of these basic foundational Christian truths that are found in the scripture This is one of them in this first verse. Notice who rebukes and who chastens. The Lord rebukes. The Lord chastens. Yes, God is sovereign in our sufferings. He is sovereign over all things. And this should bring much comfort and stability to the saints. Romans 8, 28 says, We know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to His purposes. Yes, this should bring us much comfort knowing that there is no maverick molecules in this world that are uh, against God that can thwart God's will, His decreed will. What God has decreed will certainly come to pass. Nothing more or nothing less. His perfect will will be done. And as much comfort and stability as this should bring the saints If there is any among us today who are separated from God, who are reprobate in open rebellion against the sovereign creator, image bearers of God, that are rebelling against the God that gives them breath and life, then this should bring much fear and trembling. Because in Psalm 711 it says that God is angry with the wicked every day. And as Brother Paul brought up, as we started this psalm, he said there's two two divisions within the psalms. There's the righteous and there's the wicked. And your job when you look at these psalms is to find out which category are you in. We have to get into these psalms and see. Yes, God, apart from Christ, is an angry and offended sovereign. In Isaiah 45, 7, he says, I am the Lord and there is no other the one forming, giving, forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. Yes, I the Lord do all these things. God is sovereign in our sufferings. In fact, in Philippians 1.29, it says not only is it a gift for you to believe, it is a gift that is right there compared with the gift of suffering for God. So it has been granted to you, it has been gifted to you to suffer for the Lord. So the Lord rebukes and the Lord chastens. And He does this through many different manifold avenues. He can do that through the Holy Spirit pricking our consciences. Paul says in Acts that it's hard to kick against the pricks. He does it through the Word. Through rightly looking into the Word as a mirror of God's perfect, righteous character and examining the maladies of our hearts and the the deformities of our body. As we read the Word rightly, it should reprove us. It should rebuke us. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture is inspired by God. It is God-breathed and it is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. And then God puts pastors in our lives that rightly divide the Word. And are set to be a a shepherd over our soul. They're actually in charge with that. That's why it's so important to be the member of a local body of believers. Not just to go to church on Sunday, but to be a member of that body, serving and submitting to the eldership of the church. One of the first things Brother Paul did when I came here was he rebuked me. He did and I praised that. I love this brother because of this. He said, I will never forget it. We were sitting, and you know when you're talking to Brother Paul, and he says, I got some hard truth for you. You know it's coming, right? And he said, He said, Brother, you got a lot of pride. And he was right. He said, God's going to get rid of that. And he's working on it. He's working on it. So God puts pastors in our lives. And then we have brothers and sisters in Christ who also can come along beside us and encourage us and share testimonies with us and give us their experience and show us Scripture. Maybe even point out blind spots. It's not judging for your brother to come to you in love and to to give you some reproof. And as we see here in the 6th Psalm, there's chastenings that come through providences in our lives, many of which are Frowning providences. So why do we why must we in a Christian life go through these trials and these sufferings? Number one, they make us think. They wean us from the world. Maybe there's something that you're holding on to a little too tight, a little tighter than you're holding on to the, the precious promises of God. In fact, that's why I entitled my sermon today how we feel, and what we know. Because in these first seven verses, we see how David feels. Yes, trials and sufferings, they purge sin and self-sufficiency from our life. They send us to the Bible, and they drive us to our knees. And they bring about repentance in the truly regenerated heart. That's why Paul in 2 Corinthians 7 says, he says, I, I rejoice not that you were made sorrowful, yeah. but that you were made sorrowful in a godly sorrow. Sure. Because there's a sorrow, a godly sorrow brings you to repentance which leads to salvation. But sorrow of the world leads to Death. So there's a difference in being sorry. Say the people, it's easy to get a jailhouse profession of faith, right? They're sorry that they got caught, they're sorry that they're incarcerated. They want God for them, but God wants the men that want God for God. That's who God wants. And that's why in Revelation, excuse me, these sufferings also. will do one of two things in our lives. And some of you may be experiencing these things. Trials and sufferings will either draw us closer to God, or they will push us farther away from God. Yes, they will affirm our adoption as sons. Or they will assert our enmity against God. Revelation 3.19 says, Those who I love, I reprove, and I discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. These trials are are, are to to lead us to repentance. And David concedes that here, that he needs rebuking and chastening. Notice he does not say, Lord, do not rebuke me, do not chasten me. But he, he requests that it not be done in his wrath, but it be done in his covenantal love for his people. We see that once again in Hebrews 12, 6, and 7. It says the exact same thing, that every son he receives, he scourges, and every son he loves, he chastens. In fact, where God refuses to correct, I submit to you, He has resolved to destroy. So chastening should be welcomed in the the life, and they're not pleasant. In the, in, the, in the time that we are going through these sufferings and these trials and this chastisement. But it bears witness that we are children of God. And that we have a part in the kingdom of God. And as I told you before, there's there's two, there's two really two types of chastening that comes from the Lord. And the one is the, the chastening that, that proceeds forth out of His love. To, and it's designed to, to prove and to purify and to perfect the saints. It is corrective discipline. It is is, uh, sent to instruct and to inform and to edify us. And the other one proceeds forth from His wrath. It is punitive. It is penal. And it satisfies God's divine justice. Let me remind you that that is never the case in in the life of a believer. See, Christ drank that whole cup for us on that cross. Amen. There's not one ounce of wrath in God left for the born-again believer. Amen. For it would be contrary to God's divine justice. God is not a God of double jeopardy. No. Amen. It would be contrary to Him to punish our surety, which is Christ, and the principle, which is our sin. But... Make no mistake that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin are death. And every sin was either punished in Christ or it will be punished in an eternity in a devil's hell. There's, a, there's much application as we dig into this psalm of repentance and this chastening for father, God is the perfect Father, and as fathers, we could use this in application, and I won't go into it today. With the the family, as we discipline our chi- children, with a thing with a, a term that has become alien, sadly, even within the church of gospel-centered parenting, gospel-centered uh, discipline and correction within the home, because we can't we can't make. Uh, satisfaction for God's divine justice with the sins of our children but we can use corrective discipline and love to to build them up and to instruct them and to show them their inability to bring them to repentance and to point them to the place, the fountain from which any and all grace must flow grace is found in Christ alone and David here as he, as he cries out to his Father, as he pours out his heart in this prayer, he says, Let not your smarting rod become a sword and destroy me, but praise rather that the chastisement proceed from his covenantal love. Verse 2 and 3, he continues on. He says, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am pining away, or I am weak. Heal me, O oh Lord, for my bones are dismayed. And my soul is greatly dismayed. But you, Lord, oh, how long? Yeah, David owns his sinfulness here. And while we don't know which actual transgression is taking place, we do know that he is under deep conviction in the, the heavy hand of God is upon him, whether that be from the original sin that we are all born into of our first pan, parents or either the actual transgression. And here David comes before God in the only way that any of us can come before God. Just like the, the, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. You remember the Pharisee come in and he said, he said, Lord, I'm, I thank you that I'm not like that, that tax collector over there. He said, I pay my tithes. I I read the Scripture. I I do this and I do that. And it was all about Him. And the poor tax collector couldn't even come all the way up and he couldn't lift his head. And he beat his chest and he said, Oh God, be merciful to me a sinner. This is the correct way for us to come before God. And David knew he deserved the wrath of God for such comes upon the children of disobedience. But he also knew that there was one who was coming that would give him grace and mercy Amen. Yes. and favor and reconciliation yes. with a holy and righteous God. Amen. Yeah, the saints of the Old Testament were saved in the same way that we are saved right. in the New Testament. They looked forward to the coming of the Messiah. We look back to the finished work of Christ. He says, I am pining away. I am weak. The original language here reads that I am one who droops like a blighted plant or a blighted flower. I've been there before. I know the, the power and the weight of God's hand when it rests upon you. That's right. <laughs> and our weakness is an asset. And it is a fact. And we should own our weakness. We should own our Inability to do good without spiritual strength. Unable to keep the law or exercise grace. And unable to to make atonement for our sin. We are weak before a holy and powerful God. We need to own our weakness. God's strongest warriors have all been made very weak. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 12... Paul boasts in his weakness. He talks about the thorn in his flesh that was given to him because of the the greatness of the revelation which God had given him to keep him from exalting himself. And in his weakness, he, he, he sought the Lord three times and each time God told him the same thing. He said, my grace is sufficient. Yes, we must be made perpetually weak that we can become perpetually dependent. That we might become perpetually powerful under the power of the Spirit of God. Amen. And be delivered from self-sufficiency. We must accept our weakness. In the second part of verse 2 and 3, He says, Heal me, O Lord. For my bones are weak and my soul is greatly dismayed. But you, O oh Lord, how long? Yes, sin is a loathsome and detestable disease of the body and soul. Uncurable, but by the blood of Christ. Right. And, but David here, he petitions the Lord and he says, I know there is but one physician. Send Him with that precious balm of Gilead that He might heal me and restore me. The original language here in the Septuagint is the word vexed. We're not familiar with that, but it, it, is, it is great pain and great grief and great sorrow. We see His bones were vexed. This sorrow, this, this grief and this This pain had penetrated to the very foundation of David's body. We see the same language in Psalm fifty-one and Psalm thirty-eight, three. We see that he says, "My soul is greatly vexed," meaning the body was one thing, but the soul being vexed at the same—it was—it was even far worse. And it is the cause of the former. His body is suffering because his soul is greatly vexed. And David is thrown into consternation because of indwelling sin and on account of actual transgression. And God has hidden his face from him. And Satan is whispering in his ear. David here is a type of Christ. We see the Messiah in the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew 26. He said, my my soul is deeply troubled. He was troubled because of the cup. And David was getting a little foretaste of this cup, the, the wormwood and the gall and the fierce wrath of Almighty God. What a sad and lamentable thing it is to be vexed in soul and body simultaneously. And his suffering here was completed in the fact that it it abided upon him for an extended period of time. Which prompted him to his next line when he said, But you, Lord, how long? In verse 4, he says, Return, O Lord, rescue my soul, and save me because of Your loving kindness, because of Your great mercy. It reveals that the greatest cause of his soul being vexed was, was not the, his enemies around him or the, or the infirmities of his body, but it was the Father turning his face and, and drawing back from him. Separation from God. Some of us may have felt that before. Once again, He is is a type of Christ here. As the Messiah hung on the tree, suffering the wrath of God for all of His people, every person who would ever believe, and drinking their bitter cup, the Son whom He loved, the Son whom He delighted in. His greatest affliction was when the Father turned His face away from Him because He could not look upon our sin which had been imputed to Christ. And Christ cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani! My God, my God, why have You forsaken me? He was forsaken and smitten for the sins of His people. Isaiah says it pleased Yahweh to crush Him. and and this was very convicting as I was going through this and it happened in these last weeks so no doubt in this this providence of what's going on but when I look to how David is so broken and 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 repentant and weeping over his sin and his tears and I have to ask myself the question was David a greater sinner than I am? he's not why don't I repent like this? It's not because I don't sin like this. It's not because I don't. And there's two things that will will keep us from, from going into this brokenness and this repentance. One may be that we have never truly been born again. We've never been received the Spirit of God. And we've never been clothed with power from on high. This is the same Spirit. The Spirit hasn't changed. Yet we claim to be children of God and possess that spirit. It's what we lack in repentance. Another contributing factor of this is that we have been so inundated and become so desensitized to our sin that it has become normal for us to walk in it, which should bring repentance in our lives. He says, rescue me and save me. He appeals again to the loving, covenantal love of God. In verse 5, he says, for there is no mention of you in death. In Sheol, who will give thanks? Yes, the New Testament saints, as, as we are standing here a part of the New Testament church, this kingdom that is now, the one that David looked forward to seeing, We have a greater understanding of life after death. For what is concealed in the Old Testament has been revealed to us in the New Testament. We have a whole chapter in 1 Corinthians 15 where where Paul presses upon us the certainty of the resurrection, the certainty that because he lives, we will live also. Right? We have this hope. David did not have as clear a revelation of that. There's glimpses of, of this in the Old Testament. We see that in, in Job 1925, where Job says, "As for me, I know my, my redeemer lives, and that in the last he will take his stand on earth, and even after my skin has been destroyed." Yet from my flesh, I will see God. Right? So they had a glimpse, but we have this beautiful picture of the, re- of the resurrection, which is our hope. Without the resurrection, we are of all men most miserable. And our faith is in vain. This word sheol here in verse 5 must be interpreted as hell for the New Testament saints. There was a common understanding of the Old Testament saints that in the afterlife that everyone went to Sheol. Some theologians separate that into two two different categories. I think we see that in Luke chapter 16 where the the, the rich man woke up in, in Hades or in hell and Lazarus was also there but there was a chasm between them. right? One was the bad side of Sheol and the other was described as Abraham's bosom. But all that come to end when Christ hung upon the cross as he promises that thief upon the cross that today you will be with me in paradise. So we must interpret it as hell and in David's, it's kind of like his, his last appeal here. He is getting to the end of his rope. And some of us may be at the end of our rope. David thinks that maybe all I've got left is this breath and it is giving from God. And God is sovereign in this suffering. And He makes His last appeal to him. And he says, Lord, in death there will be no pleasing remembrance or praising of You only the blasphemy of devils and damned souls. And He prays for pardon and deliverance from death, which would put an end to the opportunity and the capacity to glorify God in this world, serving the interest of His kingdom and among men, and opposing the powers of darkness, or bringing any men upon this earth to the knowledge of God and encouragement of devoting their bodies and souls and lives entirely to God. He's appealing to him here that Lord if you if you take me away and you take me out of this world I have no longer I'm no longer serviceable to you here. That's right. I'm going to paraphrase a quote here from Matthew Henry because I think it's really good. And I want us all, because this was also deeply convicting to me, to ask yourselves these questions. If you were in David's spot and you were praying to God, would you be able to make these same appeals to God? He says, The joys of the saints in heaven are infinitely more desirable than the comforts of the saints on earth. Yet the service of the saints on earth, the obedient ones, affect more to the glory and the divine grace than that, and, the, and are more laudable and praiseworthy than that of the saints in heaven who are not engaged in war against sin and Satan and edifying the body of Christ. Yes, the saints in heaven are most happy, but the soldiers in the field are most useful. Could you make that appeal to God? This was very convicting to me. We talked about it this morning how there's a brother in South Georgia or Alabama that that goes out every Sunday and he is faithfully preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ in a Walmart parking lot. And God is reaping a bountiful harvest from this man's labor. Or would some of us just be able to say, Lord, if 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 you take me to death in the grave right now, all I'm gonna be who's gonna warm that seat on Sunday morning? Yeah, right? Because right. Right? God hasn't called us to be to be pew warmers. We're not the frozen chosen. We're to be in service to this glorious kingdom. In verse six and seven, he says, I am weary with my sighing. Every night I make my bed swim. I dissolve my couch with tears. My eye was wasted away with grief. And it all become old because of my adversaries. We have this very graphic and this picturesque language of metaphors and hyperbole that impress upon us the extent of David's suffering. Yes, God's people may groan, but we may never grumble. Charles Spurgeon said that we must groan or we will never shout on the day of deliverance. Oh, that God would grant us a sensitivity to our sin and the knowledge of Himself that, that, that David had that we might be as broken in our sin as David was. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Yes, David here, he he groaned until he was weary. He was weary until he made his bed swim. He dissolved his couch with tears and he cried for mercy until his prayer became labor. And he labored in prayer until he found hope. So we we have looked now through the first seven verses of how David felt. He had this inner monologue going on between him where he was focused on what he sees and not what he knew. But suddenly here in verses 8-10, through as he says, Depart from me all who do iniquity. For the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord receives my prayer. All my enemies will be ashamed and greatly dismayed. They shall turn back and suddenly be ashamed. See, it suddenly changes when David looks from from what he sees to to reflection upon what he knows. And this great cloud of melancholy has lifted off of David that had left him desolate, despondent, and in despair. And I believe David, he catches a glimpse of the eschaton here. A foretaste of the end as he coins the words that the Lord Jesus repeats in Matthew 7 when he says, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. David knew there would be a time that come when the Messiah who came would stand upon the earth and separate the wheat from the, from the tares and the sheep from the goats and the, that his sin would finally be gone that has caused him all this grief. And he would stand in a glorified body. Three times here he talks about prayer. This whole psalm is a prayer. Prayer. And it is a plea. Prayer is an ordinary means of grace that God has given us. We should devote ourselves to a life of prayer. The disciples did not come to the Lord Jesus Christ in His earthly ministry and and, and ask Him to teach us to do miracles or teach us to cast out demons. They said, Lord, teach us to pray. He says, the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord has heard my my supplication. The Lord receives my prayer. Yes, Proverbs 15.8 tells us that the prayer of the upright are a delight to the Lord. The Lord delights in your prayers. He welcomes you to come boldly before His throne of grace. But this is not the case for anyone who is not in Christ who has not been made. And this is another one of those foundational Christian Christian truths that have been forsaken. And I have people that have (laughs) sit in pews 30 years want to tell me that I'm wrong when I tell them that God does not hear the prayers of the unrighteous and the wicked. He does not hear your prayers. John 9.31 says, We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does His will, He hears them. This is not that the the prayers of these people are, are hidden from God as much as He has hidden Himself from their prayers. God does not hear the wicked, but He delights in the prayer of His people. Which brings us to, what does our prayer life look like? Do you have a, a dedicated time that you get up and spend with the Lord? Are you forsaking this grace? He has given you this means of grace where you are encouraged to boldly come before His throne of grace. And the scepter is extended to you where you can do it in the name of Christ, who is our righteousness. I have no doubt that everyone here is an expert in 911 prayer. But are you, are you well-rounded with 411 prayer? Do you go before the throne and ask for instruction and mercy daily? I would encourage the fathers and the husbands here to have a time of prayer with your family. Pray openly for your wife in front of your wife. Pray for your children in front of your children. Take your th- knees before this throne of grace. Because out of the quantity of prayer comes quality prayer. And then when times of desolation and destruction and calamity come, you're not rubbing a genie asking Amen. for a miracle out of a body. You're just doing what you do every day. Amen. You go before your Father for He cares for you. Amen. And it is good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Amen. Good. Yeah. Absolutely. He ends it out here. He says all my enemies will be ashamed and greatly dismayed. They shall turn back and suddenly be ashamed. Once again, I think he's looking at the end. Because although it has become just a a piffy saying within within the church of Christ, but Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is still on the throne. He is interceding for us. In fact, David knew... This verse, which is the most quoted verse in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the way he says, Lord, said Psalm 110.1, Lord, my Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand while I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Yeah. In the priestly prayer of God, Christ, he said, he said, Lord, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right. Do you think God forgot to answer that prayer? He said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He sits at the right hand of His Father putting His enemies under His feet right now. I am evidence of that. I have been placed under the footstool of Christ. I was made greatly ashamed of my sin and rebellion against a holy and righteous God. And here He... I do not believe this is an imprecatory prayer. I believe there are some in the Psalms, but I believe here He's saying, I know that every tongue will confess and every knee will bow. That Jesus Christ is King of all. The King of kings and Lord of lords. He knows this. There's some of us here today that need to be greatly ashamed. We need to come to this knowledge of our sin. And there's some of us today that have been truly born again but have been avoiding the repentance that is due in our life. And we have quenched the Spirit and we walk around weak and feeble. When Christ says, I have all authority, I give you the Spirit. He said, It is better that I go, for I will send the Spirit. So it is better to have the Spirit within you than Jesus beside you. And He's given us this Spirit. What a deeply convicting text. I was deeply moved because of this. And though a testimony is not the gospel, I feel obligated because of Revelation twelve, eleven. That says, We overcame by the blood of the Lamb. In the power of our testimony, to share a short testimony with you today that I have, if I haven't shared it with you, when Sherry and I were first converted, which happened along the same or about the same time, God saved us from a life of fornication. We were living together. And that's what that is. If you are living together and you're not married, you are shacking up. That is fornication and it is abomination to the God. It is an attack on His family unit. And we were living in this open rebellion. And God, I wasn't looking for God. And He came and He sovereignly saved me and He sovereignly apprehended Sherry at the same time. And she didn't know it and I didn't know it, but we were feeling guilty about even living in the same house. And we were married within a week and a half. But shortly after that, we found out that she was pregnant. And they told us to begin with that there were some things going on with the baby and they weren't sure, but we were, we were going to stand in our faith and abortion was absolutely not even an option as much as it was encouraged. We said God is sovereign over these things. And we're going to trust Him with the end and the outcome. Some of you have been been through sufferings and know the loss of a child. But we went into that hospital six months to get the sonogram to find out the gender of the sex of the baby. (coughs) And there was no heartbeat. And I felt the heaviness. And immediately... I knew the Lord the Spirit just convicted me and said, look at the consequences of sin. But looking back on that, hindsight's always 20 20, and God, God's ways are not our ways. We don't understand what's going on. And it was a long time for us to get over that completely. I look back now and see the blessing of it. But within the first six months of being born again, I lost a child. I nearly lost my wife and I lost a job. And God taught me reliance on prayer. He taught me to dig into the scripture and to learn of these precious promises that He has given us. He reminded me that we are sovereign in all things. And He reminds me daily as I look across my table at a chair when we have dinner that a little six-year-old boy should be sitting that there is a consequence to sin. See, we make little of our sin because we know little of God. And every sin has a payday. And He's... He he reminds me occasionally as I look across of the cost of sin. But He also encourages me to know that He is sovereign in my sufferings. That He is working all things for my good and for His glory. He reminds me that my suffering is not meaningless. And as I dig into the Word, I see that nothing can separate us from this love of God. Not persecution or famine or nakedness or pearl or sword. But we are conquerors through Christ Jesus who has loved us. He chose me before the foundation of the world. He suffered and died so that I would not have to bear the wrath of the sin that I deserve. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on my behalf. And in his flesh, he learned obedience from his suffering. So I can look to the author and perfecter of my faith and be reminded that I have not, I've yet to strive against sin to the point of shedding blood to which my Messiah did. Yes, it leads me to the Word. It leads me to my knees in prayer. It causes me to trust in the One who is in absolute control of everything that we're going to. I'm going to close with this verse and I'm going to hang it over to Brother Paul. But I want you to be encouraged, brothers in Christ, sisters in Christ. No matter what you're going through, God is in control. He is sovereign over this. He is sovereign over this. Forget the inner monologue. Faith is is not looking at the things that are seen, but looking at the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are temporal but the things that are unseen are are spiritual and they are eternal. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety upon Him because He cares for you. Be sober in spirit and on the alert. For your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. When this heavy hand of the Lord is upon you, that is when the devil is going to come to try to tempt you. It's when he's going to whisper in your ear, Has God said? Does God really love you? But resist Him firm in your faith knowing that the same experiences of sufferings are being accomplished by your brothers who are in the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you into His eternal glory in Christ Jesus, will He Himself perfect you, confirm you, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the glory and the power and the dominion Forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Brother Paul.